0: Hello everyone and welcome to another podcast of the F.A.S.T. Initiative. The F.A.S.T. Initiative stands for the Farmed Animal Antimicrobial Stewardship Initiative. And it really has three overarching goals. First, to promote awareness of antimicrobial resistance in animals and humans. Second, promote good antimicrobial stewardship through responsible use and disease prevention. And finally, kind of tying everything together is really to educate farmed animal producers and vets in Ontario. Today, we'll be sitting down with Arlen and RJ Taylor from Cedarcrest Trout Farms in Hanover, Ontario. The intent of the podcast is to showcase a producer that is leading the way in fish health and biosecurity. We'll be going through some of the important aspects of management uh, and how to prevent disease on fish farms. And finally, we're going to be discussing the Best Aquacultural Practices Certification Program and the real world impact that has had for a producer that's gone through the process. All right, so welcome everyone to our uh, F.A.S.T. podcast. Today we're focusing on fish health and antimicrobial stewardship in aquaculture in Ontario. So joining me today is uh, R.J. Taylor and Arlene Taylor. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, R.J.?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, my name is R.J. Taylor. I'm, uh, I'm an owner here at Cedar Crest Trout Farms along with my sister Arlene. It's a second generation family farm. We're the largest producer of uh, rainbow trout fingerlings, juvenile fish, um, to the Ontario industry. Uh, I'm also the director, managing director for the Ontario Aquaculture Association, which is uh, an industry-led group that represents um, over 95% of farmed fish and shrimp growers in the province.
0: All right. Well, thanks for helping out,
2: R.J. Arlen. Um, So, RJ's already given a nice introduction of the family business. Um, I'm also involved with the Ontario Aquaculture Association and the NFACC um, for animal health and welfare, Um, a member for the Ontario Animal Health Network, and I represent land based aquaculture on all fronts on a federal um, and national level. Excellent.
0: So, could you take us through your operation a little bit? So, uh, you know, how many people are involved? Uh, You know, how many fish do you grow a year? Uh, just tell us a little bit about your operation.
1: Sure. Uh, Cedar Crest is a, it's a network of five land-based farms uh, in southwestern Ontario. Um, we're a team of 15 strong, and we produce about 5 to 6 million uh, juvenile fish a year for the Ontario market. So um, growing fish in, uh, in Ontario is a, a province-wide event, as they say. So uh, it's land-based farms like ours uh, that do the majority of the spawning and hatching. Uh, of the little fish and then most of them head up north to the shores of Manitoulin Island and into Perry Sound with the open water net pen farms before they make their way to grocery stores across the province.
0: And how long have you guys been in operation?
2: Um, our dad actually started fish farming in 1969. He built the farm that is now our home ship, uh, so to speak, in 1995. So we're coming up on our 25th anniversary at this facility. RJ and I have been doing it since birth. I was legitimately born at what is now the Alma Research Station. Um, and we, our lives took us other places. And we came back, uh, respectively, once we had 10 years of freedom. Uh, we both <laughs> found ourselves back fish farming for nice. some obscene reason. Can't stay away. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's my, my follow up question. I always like to ask this when I'm interviewing people. So what do you enjoy most about your job?
2: Um, for me, I chose to come back for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I wanted to be back in Canada. Um, number two, our father had purchased two other facilities in 2011. Um, I was never interested in coming back when it was just one singular farm. It wasn't busy enough for me. Um, My father and I butted heads about everything. Um, So in 2013, my dad actually asked me to come back, and we had three farms, so that started to become a little more interesting. At that time, the industry in Ontario was starting to wind up. We were getting out of... um, where we were with complacency we were you know our production hadn't risen hadn't fallen it was just sort of static for about 15 years leading up to that Um, and in the last now almost six years um, the industry has over doubled so being able to be lead the way and be part of the change um, was what drew me to coming back.
1: Um, Yeah, and I think uh, along the same lines, I think my favorite part of my job is the fact that I get to work with Arlene and my family every single day. Um, And I think fish farming in general is just so diverse. Absolutely no day is the same. Um, uh, I love how sometimes I'm in dress shoes at Queens Park, um, helping our elected officials realize the massive, massive growth potential of our sector. Um, but I also get to put on my rubber boots and 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 clean troughs. I get to work outside with my dog, or you know, um, uh, doing all sorts of different things.
0: Mm-hmm. So, awesome. Well, thanks, guys. So now, just turning the shifting the conversation around, I really wanted to focus on fish health. So. In your operation, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, that that uh, you find that affect fish health?
2: I'd say the single largest threat to fish health now um, is climate change. Um, so pathogens are evolving with climate change because we're seeing an upper barrier that is warmer than anything that we're used to. We're seeing um, huge... Huge losses due to parasites, Um, parasites that were never a threat to us before, but now because of sustained high temperatures are causing major losses. Um, Stress management through high temperatures especially um, are, are a real issue for us. At the same token, climate change is also bringing storms, um, the craziest storms we've ever seen, um, which are causing flooding, which are causing wind, which are causing in the net pens, the the water is changing over at an unprecedented rate. The lakes are higher than they've ever been. Um, so we're, we're seeing a retention of a lot of these pathogens as well, um, and the inability for that, wa- that those waters to exchange in the same sense so I'd say climate change is the single biggest and figuring out how to mitigate that we're not going to conquer it um, but we can figure out how the mitigation strategies that we need
1: when you when you talk to people around the world that are growing uh, rainbow trout um, they think that in Ontario we are crazy for the fact that we grow trout at you know 0.5 degrees Celsius up to 24 25 27 celsius um but we have the genetic stocks here in ontario that since the 50s we've been able to to domesticate and culture a fish that that thrives in those but now with the with the 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 warming waters and and all of the challenges that come with that uh it's just moving faster than than we can in terms of our our genetics in terms of how we control our environmentals in terms of how we change our husbandry Mm -hmm. practices and the and new technology adoption. adoption.
0: So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the specific strategies that you guys have, have started to employ? So now you're seeing a lot of these changing conditions. So how are you working towards healthier fish dealing with some of these conditions?
2: Um, so it starts off from a genetic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of genetic work. We run all of our own genetic bases and exposing them to higher water temperatures, finding their reactions, looking for the hardiness within the genetic. Um, families that we use. Um, that's the the starting basis. Number two being um, stress mitigation. So working really close with our staff. Um, each site that we have has its own benchmark for uh, densities, for oxygen, for tolerance. Um, so working with each of our staff to really understand that. And it really comes down to knowing your fish, um, listening to them. They will our fish will tell us when the thunderstorms coming, if you know what you're watching for. Mm. Um, they'll, they're better than any meteorologist <laughs> I've ever met. Um, not that that takes much. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can you can see a lot just knowing your fish and looking at them. Um, we've used some technology to bring it in so I can get real-time data in my office so the alarms are set off at any one of my sites um, if the mortality rate for, for any one tank rises above 1% in a day. We know that we're getting to those issues we know that we're getting to thresholds and we've got 25 years of history of of seeing it in the early days and now seeing it more aggressively and using those similar adaptations of what we've already learned along the way
1: and I think even to build to build on that too um, at our last uh, association industry conference we had a presenter say um, dealing with fish is easy but dealing with people is hard um, and I think a big part of a, what makes a, a farm successful and make a farm able to um, adapt to change is uh, having the right people in the right places. So we've, at our farms and, and definitely across the province, there's been a significant amount of, of, of training and knowledge transfer amongst farmers and to, um, from the science community to farmers. Um, so that's, that's, that's gone a big way. And that's uh, something as simple as the big changes that, that need to happen, um, with warming waters, but also, um, on a day-to-day basis, making sure that everybody on your farm is trained to recognize the first signs of stress in a, in a batch, if Mm -hmm. something's happening, Mm -hmm.
0: so. Excellent. So let's say you had a a fish health issue. So you're noticing increased morbidity, sickness, or mortality in, in one of the, in one of your tanks, where would you turn for help?
2: We look amongst our own team first. Um, so we've got various levels of qualified people. Um, the overall fish health management team of, of our farms are all of our farm managers and plus myself. Um, so we'll look at trends, um, to see what's going on, uh, depending on the time of year Depending on the size of the fish, and we'll look at our practices first. Um, if we require a, a veterinary diagnosis, um, we'll send our fish samples. Uh, we'll send more abundant fish off to the lab, um, namely. Either UPEI um, or the AHL uh, to confirm diagnosis. Most of it is spotted already in clinical symptoms. If it's a complete anomaly, um, we have a really great network of some world-renowned veterinarians who are used to my pestering oddities, as I call them. Um, again, because we're dealing with you know climate change and seeing things we've never saw seen before, um, they, I've got some vets that work. In Hong Kong and on the East Coast, on the West Coast, and in the States, that I banter them with questions mm-hmm. um, until we can come out with an answer. There's mm-hmm. also some industry veterans um, that I look to whenever there's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so the diagnosis that comes out of the lab usually only complements what we already know.
0: So you t- you chatted about your uh, fish health team. So I'm a, that that's a lot of all the managers on your farms, where does the veterinarian fit into the fish health team for your farms?
2: Um, So we've been developing aquatic veterinarian expertise in Ontario for about three years. Um, because of the lack of exposure, um, it's been very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, long story short, um, if we have a real oddity, then we require a aqua- specialized aquatic veterinarians. And that's the team to which I refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, that team also works closely with our local veterinarian, who we've been training to gain exposure um, to these cases. Because Ontario's aquatic veterinary situation hasn't always been strong for lack of farms, for lack of production, mm-hmm. um, farmers have become extremely well versed through history of Mm -hmm. how to deal with problems on their own um, and what to look for and the Mm -hmm. signs and signals so now in Ontario we're actually kind of trying to undo some of that Mm -hmm. or trying to take extract the farmers knowledge and give that knowledge out to veterinarians Mm -hmm. so the OVMA um was able to start a course to start specializing aquatic veterinarians so working with them we're developing some similar materials podcasts um archival files of photos and a network that vets can talk to um so that farmers can reflect on that as well so for us here um when it's very strange oddities. I have the network, but when it's um, a case, a normal case, I get our our veterinarian out to show him what we're seeing, to talk him through it, to help him gain exposure as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, he knows the second tests are gone out and he knows all of the prescription information should it be required. We work very closely.
1: Yeah. And I think that that sort of history of the 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 fish farmer um, as being a quasi veterinarian on their on their farm, um, that uh, that's st- still going to be there, but there's been two major shifts that have brought vets onto the farm um, in a greater capacity than ever before, and the first one is the move towards some of our um, antimicrobials to the to the medically important list. Um, and then the second one being our sort of almost industry-wide adoption towards the best aquaculture practices certification. So what we, what we nickname BAP um, is, is sort of the, the global standard for farmed seafood certifications. And they're, they're looking at um, all of your animal wear, welfare practices. Um, they're looking at your environmental records. They're looking at how you treat your staff, The, the sort of the whole social responsibility side of things. But because of that uh, animal welfare, Through BAP, that's that's meant that our fish health management plans, which is sort of a a a bible of all of our practices, um, need to be signed off from by a vet, Um, and then it also means that uh, every sort of um, therapeutant or or activity that we're doing, including when we mix our own med feed or when we uh, treat, that it is sort of it has to it has to be hand in hand with with a vet. So that came our our. Our our ten largest farms in the province have um, all adopted BAP, and we're all certified in February, um, and that's brought um, uh, that's brought a lot more vets to the farm as well.
0: Well, th- thanks for bringing up BAP and also the treatment. So this is going to kind of segue into the next section of what we're going to chat about. So maybe if you guys walk me through the process. So say I've, I'm seeing a disease and I'm trying to decide whether I reach for an antibiotic. What's, what's goes through that process uh, for your farm. So what, what are your considerations?
2: Um, Antibiotics are the last stop. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, Aquaculture here. Realistically, we have two antibiotics, antimicrobials that we can use. Um, the sensitivity on oxytetracycline is and resistance is is quite high, mm-hmm. um, because that was the mainstay. It was a cheap antibiotic that was available, mm-hmm. um, and available without a script until last year. Um, so it has been heavily used. Um, the second one, uh, florfenicol, commercially known as Aquaflo. Um, it, far more expensive, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. far, far more expensive, and sort of a, a, the absolute last possibility that you had. Um, now, knowing what we have been learning um, over the, the last years, we know that we have to be very careful. So mm-hmm. the first step is to wait. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there are zebras mm-hmm. that show up in our tanks, um, meaning fish that are not necessi- necessarily representative of the population as a whole. Um, You could have a fluke um, in our circumstances. You could have had a stressor that maybe we didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe a a raccoon got into one of the pens overnight and caused some damage uh, and or just heightened stress level. So the first step is we wait, we watch. Um, The watching period depends on the facility, depends on the tank. It's a minimum of 24 hours and a maximum of 72 hours. Mm The second level that we would look at then, if it's a gill-related issue, um, or we're seeing parasites on the exterior, anything on the exterior of the fish, we would then go into a chemical therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, Depending on the facility, that may be hydrogen peroxide, that may be chloramine tea, uh, that could be as simple as salt. Um, And we'll choose the course of action depending on what we're seeing. If it's a heavily related case to bacterial gill disease, then we'll look at what we need to treat. Um, and we use our tools effectively. Most things, I would say nine times out of 10, just waiting, lowering the stress. Um, also, when you're that evaluation period, you'll automatically take your fish off feed. Um, during an eval- your first 24 hours, you'll always take your fish off feed. Um, as we're evaluating, we'll be knowing. When we're dealing with small fish, specifically around a gram Between one and five grams. Um, If there's clinical symptoms of of, uh, cold water disease, Mm -hmm. which is our probably the biggest killer in a hatchery, Mm -hmm. um, we'll evaluate the level of infection. Um, We've become a lot more cognizant of levels of infection. Before first clinical symptom showing, side swimming, for example, in small fish is a telltale sign of cold water disease, Um, we would automatically start antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Now... We find ourselves waiting and gauging the level of infection. If you have a 2 or 3% level of infection, maybe we can wait a little bit longer. Maybe those fish are just better off to go. Um, but if we find ourselves dealing with a 20 or a 30 or a growing, emerging level of infection, then we really take a look at it. Um, but as I mentioned, it's the last stop. Um, we don't have anything to come back from after we use antibiotics. Um, And you can't continually use the courses of them um, for the fish, because then if you need them later on, you're pretty much done. Mm -hmm. Um, Florinfenacol, there's some research that suggests if you use it more than twice in a life cycle, that's it, you're maxed out. Mm -hmm. So if we use it once on a hatchery, and they need it up north, that's it. If we use it twice on a hatchery, they don't have a lot of recourse. So always with an eye to what the end product is going to be.
0: Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing. And it's, uh, how has that impacted the way, uh, that you manage your fish? I mean,
2: I don't think it's changed it too much. Um, we've always had a wait and see approach. Mm -hmm. Um, we are fortunate at most of our farms when we're dealing with cooler water. So anything below 12 degrees Celsius, we can afford to wait. Um, and we can afford to watch. Uh, if it's a mechanical issue, then we're not dealing, we know that it will have a fish health repercussion, but we'll see the mortality right off the hop. And we know what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. It's very Mm -hmm. different approach. Um, right now, the only way that it's really changed things is we wait an extra day Mm -hmm. where we would have waited 24 hours. Now we wait for 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, all of our staff are trained to use microscopes. Um, all of our staff are trained in fish health. They've been trained by myself as well as very highly qualified veterinarians. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually teach the course, uh, teach a fish health course at, uh, Fleming college for fish health, um, and aquaculture technicians. Mm -hmm. So, um, we continue that here and they're always looking at scopes, even just as a preventative. One of the things that I recommend to all of my staff is if you find some downtime, especially in the summer, grab some fish. If you're looking for something to do for an hour, just look at fish, just look at more and more fish so you can understand what they should look like. Um, so doing those little exercises with people and we're, we've got a lot of science nerds on our team, so oh, nice. they yeah. enjoy, <laughs> right um, uh, the biology of things. So if anything, the only thing that's changed is an extra day. We wait an extra day. We don't. If there are enough clinical symptoms and a high enough infection rate within the population, we do not wait for a definitive diagnosis and culture from the lab because it will take too long. Mm -hmm. Um, Those diagnoses can sometimes take 10 days Um, and the infection rate once it gets that high then we're in a serious issue.
1: And like a lot of um, other farms and other industries, we also here at Cedar Crest live in the world of big data, let's say so, but uh, as part of uh, leading up to the BAP certification, we actually adopted a, um, a, a full farm, open source, real time production management software. So every staff member is tracking everything that they do on the farm from their phone or on the computer. Um, and so that is everything from a feed to a collecting a, a, a mortality to a treatment. But it's also um, we we require as part of our certification and just good practice um, a visual inspection of every tank at Mm -hmm. least once a day and Mm -hmm. frankly most of them are getting many more visual inspections and we're tracking that if there's any observations of any different behavior or they're not feeding properly or a pump breaks or there's any sort of little data point there that could lead to something it's all tracked now and Mm -hmm. so now um as much as i know arlen would love to keep it all in her head with five farms <laughs> and how many incubator <laughs> trays did we count when we adopted the soft <laughs> like just four hundred fifty-seven. Um, uh, like... We were we find ourselves relying on the software um, a lot because it's also helping govern those decisions for for prudently using such uh, mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. and managing so.
2: trends to continue to manage as many trends as we can with yeah. environmental change. Yeah,
1: from a from a pure data approach instead of anecdotal. So
0: okay. So it gives you more access to what's happening on a more real-time basis. Um, how how easy or hard was that to get buy-in uh, from your employees?
1: That's a good. Land? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think uh, uh, our land definitely warmed them up for a long time that this was coming. Um, but although um, using out on the farms, everything was tracked in paper, and then um, as it continued what Arlen would do with all of the paper records was input them into the computer. But eventually as things grew, that became um, a day or two or three a month, which was uh, a little crazy, but I think, um, we, we, we made the entire team here part of that adoption approach. So when we brought the team in here to bring in the software, it wasn't just us in the head office. we had our entire team here working through how the software should change and is it right for this application and that application and so we made the whole team part of it. And then a fun anecdote from our team is um, our oldest staff member who's been um, at one uh, who's been managing uh, one of our farms for this will be his 31st year. Um, he was so determined not to be left behind with this whole digital wage, um, (laughs) that he actually became one of the, like the super users of the software and, um, now knows it, I think best on the team. And he was training all the, the young bucks, as he said. So, um, it, uh, um, I think like any transitioning everything, anything to a, to a digital system like that takes time. It it took a solid year until everyone was comfortable with it, and we trusted the data enough that it was tracking all the inventory and all of the populations. But um, I think uh, I think we're pretty happy with it now. Yeah, so.
2: now it's made us dumber. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we can depend on it, right? and yeah. now we can just look at it, and it's yeah. pretty, and we can forget about it. You don't have to
1: remember um, what's in every tank at all times. Yeah. yeah. Or what we did last month.
0: Do you have a specific example of how... Uh, how that software is making a positive impact on your, on your operations? So what could you, uh, is, is there anything that comes to mind right away? Like,
1: uh, in terms of, of time, huge time saver, yeah. huge, huge time saver, uh, in terms of fish health, it's a good no, question. I'd say the
2: immediate benefit is empowerment of our staff. Yeah. Um, So everyone knows that their hands are on the data. They know that they can look up every single bit of information that's in there. And obviously different users have different levels of access. But they can look it up and they know it and they they dominate that. And so having this really empowered staff... More so than ever, has been the best part. I think,
1: and it's it was that way when we adopted the BAP certification. It's been that way when we've brought in other um, fish health changes. Having the the entire team as part of the process, I think, has has made things move very swiftly and effectively here. Yeah, so. and
2: to be able to like quickly just look up data, like, okay, these guys yesterday we saw mortality raise up to half a percent. What mm. are they doing today? Mm -hmm. before it was calling the manager who then went and grabbed the paperwork and it may Mm -hmm. not have been that person that was collecting the morts and now I can see who did it what they saw immediately so we can make those calls even faster and just spot trends I mean I'm a I'm a data nerd so it's fun to spot the trends
1: and I think when you have the instant access to data it lets us try a bunch of things really quickly too let's try a new feed for two weeks on these four troughs and we can within five minutes figure out that those troughs compared to something else so we're not getting around to it a few months later how did this feed go but we're we're able to try new feed additives or new water treatments or like different feeds or just just different practices in general maybe different densities different densities different feeding regimes we're able to just try them out Mm -hmm. even quicker and see the results of it Mm -hmm. so
0: Oh, very cool so you'd recommend oh yeah
1: on the, on we're, we're, we're
2: we're i think we've annoyed everyone at, you know, recommending it to death
0: yeah so we've touched on bap a couple a couple times maybe we'll go into a little bit more in, in depth how that process was what was the process like for you for bap
1: uh that's a good question um I might leave that to our because she's the one Arlen, who got it started. What was the like like? <laughs> it, was, it was, it was four years in the making. As an industry, um, the, the biggest players, we all sat down to decide what certification regime we wanted to do. Where we landed on BAP was that it wasn't just environmental, wasn't just fish health. Um, it was the whole gamut plus the whole social responsibility side of things. Um, but inching everybody towards that
2: um it was it was a lot of consultation so as rj mentioned um with the the top 10 so to speak um consulting sharing information trying to figure out how we were going to do this um and putting it all together for us cedar crest we took a different approach and we used this as as an excuse um so these farms that we have our oldest girl was built in 1972 um we wanted to do some fun and modern things <laughs> um which we didn't think were very modern but for our dad are um so we used it as an excuse um and as an industry they didn't necessarily use it in the same context as a business tool that we did um but we needed about a year and a half almost two years to build some of the infrastructures required not the soft Um, The soft side like the data and the standard operating procedures and writing all of those things down fish farmers have always been good at having standard operating procedures They've just been terrible at writing them down Mm -hmm. Um, So that was one piece to it, but it was making sure that people's feed sheds were up to snuff. It was making sure that um, chemical storage and antibiotic Monitoring and usage and storage were taken care of those small little pieces of the infrastructure So as an industry we allowed about two years to complete that part a year, um, the first year, we basically just kind of talked about it and read about it and all shocked and didn't know what we were going to do. <laughs> um, two years for building infrastructure. And then the last year was the home stretch. And that was getting all the standard operating procedures for everyone written, making sure that the fish health management plans across the board all fit each other as well. So that there was a transparency and data that was coming from the hatchery to the farms and then to the processor. Um Making sure that we had that overlooked by risk assessors, um, veterinarians who do this for a living and making sure that we were getting all those pieces. So that last year was really the home stretch for that. Um, And then it was here. Mm -hmm. And I think we were all a little bit shocked (laughs) um, that it was over and it was easier than we thought it was going to be, which was kind of scary. Um, we're a little overachievers here in Ontario. There you go, <laughs> overachievers. Um, so it was really good, but it was it was a long and lengthy process, and, and it needed to be done in a sense so that the processor um, in in Ontario, Cole Monroe, um, could also use that as a business tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were using it for industry betterment. It was also for us chosen as a tool when it came to dealing with government agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, because BAP has more stringent guidelines on water quality Mm -hmm. on fish health than anything they can come up with. Um, so to use it as a tool to say we actually surpass the provincial levels of, um, regulation and legislation at the time. So we're able to use that as well to continue our work on the lobbying side. Mm -hmm. So it fit all of these really cool needs that we had here in Ontario. Um, but it was, we probably could have done it in two years, um, <laughs> but we did it. In four. Yeah. Take <laughs> <laughs> <Archaeological> our <laughs> <laughs> time. Make sure we get it right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah.
1: I I think um, seafood in general, not just not just fish farming, but seafood in general, there is rampant mislabeling. Um, there's um, there's issues because it is such a global globalized sector with how fast things move across borders. It's one of the fastest moving sort of proteins around the world. Um, mistakes happen, especially when coming from sort of more unregulated areas. Um, and so seafood in general is held to this really high standard. And that's why certifications abound for seafood um, in terms of making sure that the food product is safe and that it comes from a that it truly is sustainable from all, all, all sides. Um, but what I, what, I, what I like to, you know, as an industry, um, sort of, the as, as we say, the fastest growing agri-food sector, um, aquaculture, we, we, le- we look to the other sort of larger commodities like dairy, for instance, to understand their, their use of data and, and how sophisticated that is. But what I find myself often saying to them, too, is these certifications that we've had to comply with that other livestock commodities have been able to stay away from. They're, they're coming for those groups, too. I think these is, uh, consumers are demanding more and more insight into their food and not necessarily trusting just one, but they seem to want 10 certification labels on the box. Uh, even just the government one is not enough. So they're, they're, they're coming, and they've already started coming towards us fish farmers asking how we do things and what was the scheme and how did we choose that because um, it's truly happening, I think, across all proteins.
0: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Biggest challenge with the process or challenges?
2: Collaboration, <laughs> people, people. Um, All's come we be, again, RJ sort of mentioned it when we came to technology introduction. We didn't just throw it at everyone and arbitrarily say, this is what we're doing. Um, The whole industry, when we were choosing everyone had input, and you could discuss it with your farm managers, or you could discuss it with whoever you wanted on your team to come up with the best decision. It wasn't an arbitrary um, decision-making process. And when it came to our staff as well, I threw it at them, I, I threw it at the staff managers and said, read it And then come back with questions. And then we kind of left it for six months. And then we came back to it. And it was sort of like building it into the process. But that collaboration of getting it so that, okay, like this standard operating procedure is a line in the sand. You all have to do it the exact same way. Um, those kinds of things, I think were probably the hardest approaches.
1: Mm-hmm. And fish farmers are by by nature kind of quirky and rebellious. We don't like <laughs> being told what to do. And so coming down on on our team, and I, it was definitely the case with the other farmers saying, now you will have a visitor log and you you will have a paper record that you refill your Viercon mats like every Friday and some of those those stricter rules. we had to to ease people into those, you know, make it seem. Um, make it, make it truly a, a, a group affair. So even if there was some complaining, we all got to complain together and it was because of someone else's crazy criteria, not (laughs) ours, you know,
0: exactly. So. So, uh, we talked about the benefits to the industry in general. So, uh, what are some of the impacts you've noticed on your farms, uh, from, from going through the process and instituting a lot of the recommendations through the process?
2: i think general awareness um so B- bap together with um putting in our, our production management software at the same sort of t- in the same time frame mm-hmm. um just made communication among staff a lot easier mm-hmm. um and just staff empowerment i think that's the biggest thing ultimately we believe if our people are happy um they love their jobs and we love them and inherently if those two things coincide you have really happy fish (laughs) Um, they're they want to make sure their job is done correctly Um, and they care like the people everyone that we have working for us really care about the animals that they are taking care of Um, so maintaining that atmosphere and that empowerment into how that transfers to the fish is singularly the best thing um, so we 've been able to increase the level of empowerment to staff, which has then increased the level of oversight into the fish if that makes sense
1: yeah um, I think at the at the farm, if I can speak on sort of an industry wide level um, being certified it 's just helped helped us talk to their Nobody owns aquaculture in terms of the Ontario government. It seems to be falls under natural resources, uh, relies heavily on environment. There's also sort of the whole OMAFRA piece. There's a few other areas in there, too. And even in those ministries, separate divisions and directorates and stuff. Um, And so it it really has just become a big communication tool on communicating the sustainability of our of our sector. And just in a way that is trusted and validated. There's an auditor. With fish farm experience on every farm at least once a year, pouring over records, opening every drawer, uh, looking back in every file, so it's, making uh, sure paint's not expired. Yes. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: perfect. So one of the one of the big parts of BAP is biosecurity. So maybe I'll start this uh, next segment, segment off with uh, like kind of a global heady question: What does biosecurity mean to you?
2: You can start. Or you'll start. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: Biosecurity to us is, um, it's about preventing disease um, and or controlling it if it's there. Um, And I think using all the tools at your disposal to do that. So whether or not that's physical things like um, football foot mats um and disinfecting equipment between uses or between farms and making sure things aren't shared between farms um, but then there's a, a big communication piece to making sure that the visitor log is accurate so you know who's traveling where when if you need to quickly track where th- where something might have spread um so yeah
2: um so from an on-farm perspective it's um biosecurity at all of our farms it's not created equal um, some of our farms have inherently higher risk associated with them. For example, the Cedar Crest facility, uh, draws its main source of water from a river. Um, so obviously we, we get everything that's thrown at us and, and, and then some, so our biosecurity protocols on each facility. Have have had to change according to um, what we deal with on every facility. Obviously, the biggest set of risks is any fish coming out of Cedar Crest have the potential for more health risks than, say, a closed um, or a RAS facility. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been... um, That's a big part of it. For us on a daily basis, it's being conscious. Mm -hmm. It's being... The, the foot mat isn't going to save the virus from coming in, but it, every time you cross that foot mat, you're thinking about washing your hands, you're thinking about changing your clothes, you're thinking about um, making sure that you're not transferring equipment from one area into another that shouldn't be transferred without washing, things like that. So, those constant reminders, I think for us, biosecurity is this big word, it's a big label, but it's just inherent in the husbandry practices that we have. We have special biosecurity protocols because that's what the world sees them as being labeled. But a farmer really just sees that as their husbandry on site.
0: Yeah, I, I love that you, you, you brought up the fact that um, there there is certain points that you can't control. So you're, you're drawing a lot of water from a river. So what are some of the practices that you found effective Uh, given the fact that you do have that entry point potential for certain other diseases. Um,
2: Trend management. So, you know, we look at it, our fish get tested every year, um, twice a year for a full viral panel to ensure that something hasn't inadvertently gotten in just as a mere surveillance. Um, We do that for all of our clients as well, prior to shipping their fish. Um, And, in any level, um, when, when we have to test our fish, if we suspect uh, the requirement for antimicrobials or an oddity, um, we're doing constant surveillance, um, looking at those things. We have watched trends. Um, we have highly qualified people um, who are watching these things at all times. And, and we're so fortunate here in Ontario, knock on every piece of wood, um, that we haven't seen the major viruses that have been seen in other species across Canada and the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're watching for them. We're afraid of them. Um, that's where our, the best part of our biosecurity comes from, is is the constant vigilance and watching for them. Um, We know that we have to be very cautious with equipment that comes from this facility going to other facilities. We know that we have to be very careful when we ourselves are are transferring. Um, But inherently, there are bacterial pathogens that are just endemic. Um, So those are the main things that we fight with. Uh, Parasites, we do not have at our closed-loop systems. So we are very cognizant of how to deal with them at Cedar Crest and not transfer them to other sites.
0: Any... uh like big techniques that you found that are really effective at preventing disease
2: stress, stress management, stress management, stress management,
0: what kind of, what kind of things are involved in stress
2: management? Um, A lot of different things depending on the site. Um, So first and foremost, density, Um, having a density that is high enough so that your fish uh, do not become territorial, but low enough that you can continue to grow your fish in the most healthy means possible and optimize your system. Um, knowing your fish, being mindful and watching them. Um, Our fish, uh, as RJ mentioned before, fish get checked for sure on a daily basis. But um, unconsciously, we're all checking the tanks every time we walk through any rearing section, um, which could happen 30 times a day by four different people. Um, So that's always being watched. Um, Really knowing, what and when to expect something. If there's rainfall, it will affect wells. It will affect river run sites. Um, It will affect springs. So the potential or the risk analysis for what could happen afterwards, what are we really watching for now, Um, looking at it from a 72-hour, 48-hour, all these different time perspectives to really know what we're looking for. Um, But basically, it comes down to stress management of your fish, keeping them in the optimal density, Um, with the most the best environment we can provide to them um, however we need to do so and um, knowing that the pathogens are there just keeping them from not being opportunistic with the fish
1: as i like to uh, i do like to say um here at Cedar Crest, um, Arlen is not the boss and I'm not the boss and the site leads, not the boss, the fish, the fish are the bosses, because it might be 15 minutes after, you know, the end of your quote unquote shift. But if the fish are showing some some signs of stress or a pump isn't quite working properly, um, they're the boss, they, they're the one who keep you there. Sometimes late, late into the night, or up all night long, they're <laughs> the boss, so um, teaching that as a and embedding that in the culture here um, is is all part of I think really how we catch those things quickly because it's and then again it's not it's not the sight leads or even our lens responsibility it's everybody's responsibility to keep those fish alive and happy
2: yeah. so anytime we have any form of an issue, um, be it fish health, be it. Uh, mechanical, be it personnel, we don't singularly define one person as the responsibility because then the cross checks also weren't done. So every one of these issues has been over examined to death. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we all know and we all know what we need to be looking for and the responsibility that we're held to. Um, So as RJ pointed out, it is full level of responsibility. So
1: and it's, I mean, uh, no, on, on all of our farms, no task is beneath anybody, and it's, it's all part of, you know, even if you are cleaning the manure up at the end of the raceway, you're not just doing the grunt job of cleaning up the manure. You're also looking at, why is this really stuck on the bottom? Is there a stray feed in this? Is there a feeding issue that's because of this? Why is this extra fluffy? Have we changed something? And so this idea that even the quote unquote grunt jobs, they're opportunities to make sure the fish are doing okay. Um, and just keeping that, uh, making sure that people don't think of that as the, 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 the grunt task. Oh, I'm just, you know, the morning chores of cleaning the troughs. No, you're observing the fish and you're observing everything that is happening in that little ecosystem, um, every morning. So that's just, that's all part of it. So
0: always comes back to the human, human factor for everything. Yeah. yeah. Huge human fish are easy, yeah. Well, we were chatting before, uh, yeah, exactly. No kidding, eh? We were chatting before, RJ, about you know, like genetics. Everyone wants to find the the quick fix, but really, a lot of the health and disease challenges are coming from the way that we're managing. You know, even that things that you can't control, there's a lot that you can control that can mitigate some of the environmental effects.
1: If it's if it's if there's a, a pie chart for growing the perfect fish. Um, we like to think of it as ninety five percent genetics, um, but in reality, it's probably five to ten percent genetics. Uh, maybe ten to fifteen percent feed those inputs. And the rest of it is half environmentals and half husbandry. So how are you caring for those fish? And then how are you dealing with bumps along the road that that, that come with caring for those fish? So, and that's where the people come in, because, yeah.
0: All right, so I think we're we're kind of wrapping up here. I just have one more question for you, and it's a little bit of a a general question, uh, just because the the industry is growing so quickly. So, uh, from a from a fish health perspective, what advice would you give to someone that's just starting out in the industry?
2: Make friends. Come make talk friends. to us. Yeah, no, make make <laughs> ma- like Come make friends and build your network of people that you can call on and look to. Um, don't because it's such an evolving science as well um, there's no steadfast rule if you make friends you can start bouncing ideas off of them and take from their experiences and not spend the 30 years that they spent learning these things you you take on their knowledge and you move forth um, that would be singularly the the most important thing.
1: And if we can grow a fish to market size, it will sell at a re- to a retailer or to a consumer at a fair price. There really isn't much competition here when it comes to growing the fish. And so everyone is willing to work together. And like I said before, fish farmers love challenges. And even if they're not at their own farm, if if, if you come at them and say, I found this water source, or I want to build this ras farm, or or turn this I don't know old beer brewery into a fish farm like boom you'll have not just the beer brewery but you'll have a dozen <laughs> of dozen fish farmers there like ready and willing to help out nice so, uh.
0: excellent so good community to work with then. yes yeah, yeah. absolutely
1: yeah. yeah absolutely
0: awesome well thank you guys very much for yeah. uh, taking the time out of your day and thanks Dan and uh,
1: and Steve thanks us for around. coming out to the farm today yeah, thank you, you.
0: that's great <laughs> thanks okay. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Remember to check back with this podcast, as we're going to continue putting up new podcasts on this issue. And We're also working on other tools and resources for vets and farmed animal owners, all focused on antimicrobial resistance and the practice of good stewardship. You can find all these tools and resources at www.amstewardship.ca. FAST is a collaborative initiative between the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association, Acer Consulting, government, academic, and industry partners. Its mission is to improve antimicrobial stewardship in farmed animals, prepare farmed animal owners and their vets for upcoming policy and regulatory changes, and preserve the efficacy of antimicrobials without compromising animal health or food safety. Thanks very much for listening.